0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, I'd like to ask you to get out your Bibles. We are studying 2 Timothy as a church. We are right now um, getting towards the very end of the book. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 is what we're going to be studying. I don't care if you get out a paper Bible or if you get out an electronic Bible or you use a, a phone Bible. It doesn't matter to me. Just go ahead and get out your copy of God's Word. I would also ask you to take out your sermon notes. Here at Crosswinds, I encourage you to use your sermon notes. You will get much more out of your message when you take notes during your message. I know for some of you, you don't come out of a church or denomination that gives those kind of notes, but I would encourage you to just join us in using those notes. So today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. These verses are essentially Paul giving a brief commentary on his life. In these verses, he talks about his present, and he talks about his past, and he will also talk about his future. And in spite of the real challenges Paul is facing, challenges in his life because many of the churches he planted are honestly falling apart, challenges in his life because he is now in a dungeon and will soon be killed. He does not face his death In the upcoming days, despondently. But as you will see in these verses, he faces those things triumphantly. This is very important. Because in these verses, we find from Paul, how can we finish well? How can we finish the end of our life, not despondently, but triumphantly? especially when things that we have worked on in our life don't seem like they're coming together like we always planned for them to come together or always hoped they would come together. How can we still finish well and finish with triumph? That is what we're going to be studying this morning. Incidentally, um, we're going to do just verse 6 this morning and we're going to finish verses 7 and 8 next week the week after that we'll do verses 9 through 22 and finish the book of second timothy so that's how the layout will be for the next 3 weeks as we finish the book so stand out of reverence for god's word and follow along with your eyes in your copy of the holy scriptures as i read verses 6 through 8 paul writes for i am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing that ends the reading of god's word and you can be seated so beginning on the top of your outline the the question we're going to look at here is how do i finish well and i want to begin with talking about the simple fact that this is not a good time for paul to die at least in a human sense as he would look at it paul has spent the last 30 years of his life planting churches. He has spent the last 30 years of his life trying to reach people with Jesus, but the way it looks right now, things are not going well. The message that Paul consistently preached is the only way to be made right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and by Jesus alone. That is the message he trumpeted. And it's true. But what has happened in many of the churches where he planted them and he preached this message is they have gone off track. They've gone off the rails. False teachers have come in and say, no, we're not saved simply by grace, faith in Jesus. You need to do good works. You need to do things to make yourself right with God. For instance, the Jews would say, oh, you can be a Christian, but you also need to be circumcised. You also have to start following a bunch of Jewish laws and Jewish rituals. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, as soon as you add to being saved by grace through faith in Jesus, you destroy being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This is a serious issue. Well, not only are there false teachers that have come in that are distorting the gospel. There's also false teachers that have come into many of these churches that are essentially preaching an ancient version of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Paul would consistently say that the good life isn't now. The good life is when we die, we are with Jesus. We're not in the lake of fire. We're with Jesus, who is the one who loves us. Jesus, who is the source of all joy. That is the good life. In this world, we will have trouble. But in eternity, we have Jesus. That's where the good life is. But false teachers have come in and said, follow me. And the good life is now. If you give to me, the good life is now. And it's essentially the ancient version of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And many of the churches have gone astray following it. I'll give you an example. Take the church of Ephesus, for instance. The church that Timothy was pastoring the church that this letter we are studying was written to Timothy when he pastored there. Ephesus was a church that Paul founded. Paul loved the church of Ephesus. He spent one-tenth of his entire ministry career in that church, loving on that church and planting that church. And what most people don't realize, at one time, the church of Ephesus was actually an ancient version of a mega-church. It was huge when Paul was pastoring it at one point. Acts chapter 19 tells us a little bit about this. You may remember what happened in Acts 19, where um, Demetrius was a silversmith who got quite upset with the Christians. In in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was, the temple was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She was a goddess that people worshipped. It was a huge business for the city. But so many people in the city of Ephesus became Christians and stopped going to the temple of Artemis that Demetrius, who worked in the souvenir shop to make little images of Artemis, was going out of business. That's a big church. In fact, he starts a riot against the Christians because he's so tired of losing money. You may remember this when we studied the book of Ephesians. We learned this. The city of Ephesus also was at one time the epicenter of occult and witchcraft in the ancient world. It was a publishing center of books on witchcraft and the occult. But the church had become so big, so many people had left the occult, had left witchcraft to become Christians and join the church. Acts chapter 19 tells us that the church in Ephesus had a book burning where people brought There are books of spells and there are books of witchcraft and they burned them and they burned so many books it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Which means nothing to you until you do the math and translate. That is over $6 million in occult literature was burned at just one time at the church of Ephesus because of so many people who became Christians. The church of Ephesus, as I said, at one time was an ancient version of a mega church. But Paul knew it wouldn't always stay strong. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, he pulled the Ephesian elders aside, and he says, you know, when I leave, this is what's going to happen, and I'll read it to you. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And when he left, that's exactly what happened. Those false teachers came into the church, and even they rose from among the church, and tore away huge parts of people from the church, great schisms. It looked like a train wreck. In fact, that is why Paul sent young Timothy to the church in Ephesus, to help get it back on track. And to help Timothy do that, Paul actually wrote the two letters that we have in our Bible, called 1st and 2nd Timothy instructions for young Timothy on how to get the church back on track. But many people in the Church of Ephesus did not want to hear young Timothy's solid Bible preaching. If you remember, just just two or three weeks ago, we saw what they wanted to hear. Remember they had itching ears? They just wanted feel-good preaching, not strong Bible teaching. And the point I want to make is simply this, that the church that Paul loved, the church that Paul planted, that had been an ancient megachurch, was in serious trouble. Not a good time, it would seem, for Paul to die. Not a good time for Paul to go. And by the way, just so you know, it wasn't only the church in Ephesus that was in serious trouble at this point. It was most of the churches that Paul had planted we're in serious trouble at this point. What do you think most of the letters in our New Testament from Paul are about? Churches that he had planted that had gone astray. And he's trying, trying to bring them back. Now, it wasn't just churches that were in trouble, but I think personally, this is an opinion that I think Paul was worried about Timothy. Timothy, the young man who would take his place when he was gone. For Paul, it would have been a very difficult pastoral life. You know, as we read last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that Paul had been whipped many times, had been beaten for the gospel. He had been stoned and left for dead by the Jews who had great opposition to the good news about Jesus but now in this next generation, the generation where Timothy would be the new lead pastor when Paul was gone, it wasn't just the Jews who would be opposing the Christians, oftentimes violently and physically and painfully, but history shows us that now the Roman government itself had taken up opposition against the Christian church. I mean, that was why Paul was in prison in the first place, wasn't it? That the Roman government was now opposed to the church It's why Paul would soon lose his head. And here is young Timothy, a man who is timid by nature, having to hold the leadership of the church, face the fury of the Jewish mobs, and face the anger and viciousness of Rome itself trying to squash the church with its thumb. I think Paul had a natural concern. Would Timothy stay strong? Would Timothy be faithful all the way to the end? Or would he compromise the gospel? Obviously, he wanted him to endure to the end, which is why he wrote this entire letter that we're studying. Yet, in spite of all these challenges, in spite of the churches that Paul had pastored being on the rocks, in spite of young Timothy facing immense challenges in his generation. We see Paul still facing death triumphantly, not despondently. What is it that, in spite of all these challenges, enables Paul to finish well? Even when the very things that he has worked for for his life, the planting of churches and the spreading of the gospel, in many ways seems to not be going well at this point. Well, that's what we're going to study this morning. And I think it's very applicable. Because what we can learn about how Paul was able to finish well, in spite of everything around him not going well, will be something that we can apply, how we can finish well in our lives. Even when the very things that we have worked for may not seem to be coming together like we have wanted them to all along. So let's look at the first way we can finish well. And by the way, there's simply three points here. I'm going to show them to you. Finishing well means passing the baton. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And this point simply comes out of the first few words of this verse For I. Now, how can I get a point out of that? Here's what you need to understand. It's designed to contrast with the very beginning Prosper, words church. of the verse Over before seven years ago, this, the which are, a but church. you. Let me open the Spencer I put this in I your outlines here. Put these is. verses together, and you'll see what I mean. As for you, that's you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Why should you be this way, Timothy? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In other words, Timothy, you need to endure suffering. You need to go after your ministry, because I am finishing my race. I am getting done. I am going off the track. My lap is over with. this is a baton. And I have seen these batons a lot. In fact, I spent a lot of time watching these batons this year. Some of you have talked to me about my daughter because she was running in track this spring, and she was part of a 4 by 400 team in Spirit Lake that did very well, uh, along with Lindsey Grout, who was also on that team, and she did excellent as well. And uh, they actually took third at the state finals this year in 3A for girls. I'm just, I tell my daughter, she's fast. Yay, go. But here's what I learned as I watched the 4x400 a number of times this year. You can be really fast going around that track. But if you cannot place the baton that is in your hand into the next person's hand, you lose the whole race. If you cannot make a successful handoff, it's all over with. The other thing you need to know, when it comes to the handoff, one person is extending it forward, another person is reaching back to grab it. Who has the primary responsibility to make the handoff? Do any of you know? The person extending it Forward must place it and keep it in the hand of the person they're giving it to. That's the only way to win the 4 by 400 race. And what we find is this is not just true of athletics, but this is also true in the church. Those who are running with the baton right now, who are leaders in the church right now, have a responsibility to prepare the next generation of leaders, they have a responsibility to place the baton into the next generation of leaders. If they do not do that, it doesn't matter how well they run, how fast they run, we will not be able to continue the gospel into the next generation. In fact, Paul was very intentional, we find, about preparing to pass this baton to the next generation. If you remember how this has gone, Paul took young Timothy. He put him under his care. Timothy traveled with Paul. Paul invested into Timothy because Paul knew that one day he would be gone, he would die. Whether being killed by somebody or dying of old age. And what would matter is had he placed the baton into the next generation's hands. In fact, Paul had gone out of his way to help Timothy with this. He wrote First and Second Timothy in our Bibles. They're essentially leadership training documents. Helping Timothy to run well. By the way, just so you know, Timothy was not the only person that Paul trained and prepared to carry the baton into the next generation. There's a number of other men that Paul also trained and prepared to carry the baton. We'll see this as we get a little further into chapter 4. I'll just read these now. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Oh, flip my page. Who are these people that I'm reading to you? These people are young men that Paul has been investing in to hand the baton off to the next generation. Demas... Well, we know it doesn't go well with him. He flakes out and he leaves. Crescens, he's a young man that Paul's invested in. He's going to Galatia. Titus, we already have another book in our Bible that Paul wrote to him. Another leadership training document to help young Titus. Luke is the seasoned veteran. Mark is young John Mark, who eventually writes the Gospel of Mark that we have studied Tychicus is another young man that Paul has invested in. So even though things are not going well in the churches that Paul has planted, Paul is not freaking out. He is not worried, and here's why. Because he has developed the next generation of leaders who will handle those problems in the churches. He's able to die triumphantly, Not despondently, because this baton was passed into the next generation of leaders' hands. Now, the question is, what about us at Crosswinds? How are we doing in this area? Are we preparing to pass our baton and to pass it well? It's too easy to think that as Christians, all we want to do is focus on living our lives for Jesus, and then we want to focus on reaching people with Jesus. But being a Christian is much more than just that. Being a Christian is also developing and putting the baton in the next generation of Christians for Jesus. You must do that. Folks, nobody will run with the baton forever. Nobody will hold the baton forever. You and I will pass the baton. The only question is, will it be a good pass or will it be a fumbled and dropped pass? No other way about it. You will pass it and so will I. If we don't let go of the baton, if we intentionally keep holding the baton and we don't develop and deploy the next generation, What happens is Crosswinds Church will simply go old and extinct. We must develop young men and young women, place real leadership into their hands, coach them, empower them, and help them fly faster, higher, and farther. That is our job. It's the only way for us to be able to finish Well, it's what enabled Paul to be able to finish well, even when there were problems in the churches. He had the next generation of leaders prepared and ready to go in the churches. So the first key to finishing well is we must prepare to pass the baton and do that well. The second key we find to finishing well in these verses is this. Finishing well means living my life as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for Jesus. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. You say, well, being poured out as a drink offering? What does that mean? Why would Paul even say that? What you need to do is you need to understand Paul's background. Paul's background was the Old Testament. So we have to jump back to the Old Testament to see where this comes from. A good place to begin is simply to go to Numbers chapter 15. Remember the context of when Numbers was written? Um, We had two key generations of Israelites. We had the Exodus generation at that time. And remember, they didn't do too well getting into the Promised Land. They were under God's judgment for their unbelief. They were walking in circles for 40 years in the desert, but there was a new generation growing up among them at that time. That new generation would go into the Promised Land, which by the way, I always thought was a really awkward position to put the older people. Now which one of you is going to be the last person to finally do- die so the rest of us can go into the Promised Land? But as this younger generation is with the older generation, walking in circles for 40 years till all the older folks die off. God's trying to figure a way to give this younger generation a vision for the future, a hope for the future, anticipation for the future. So what God does in the book of Numbers, he tells them about the kind of sacrifices they will offer when they finally get to the promised land, where they're not living only on manna. So... Let me just read for you the first three verses of Numbers 15. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow. Or as a free will offering, or at your appointed feasts, to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Essentially, when you guys, the younger generation, gets into the Promised Land, you're going to offer a lot of offerings. There'll be burnt, burnt offerings, there'll be free will offerings, there'll be vow offerings. And then what happens is, is it goes into more details about these offerings. Verse four. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil. What he's saying is you offer your animal on the altar. That's your animal offering. But the animal offering is not alone. You bring with it some fine flour mixed with oil. And you put on top of that burned animal, as it burns up, this porridge of oily flour. Which, by the way, oil helps things to burn, doesn't it? So this will go on top of that. How much is this porridge mixture of flour and oil? Because uh, these particular kinds of measurements don't mean much to us. Essentially, at this point, we're talking about a gallon of flour and oil mixed together. But that's not the end of the offering. Still on the same offering, there's another part to it. You get to verse 5. And you shall offer with the burnt offering, or for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. So the way the offerings take place is you put the animal, you burn the animal up. And by the way, that takes a little while to burn up an animal. And then you put the porridge of flour and oil on top of that, and that takes a while to burn up. The very last part of your sacrificial offering is wine that is poured onto the hot coals at the end, which you can imagine what happens to that wine when you have a whole bunch of hot coals. How long does that wine last? goes up in steam. Now, what happens in the following verses? I'm not going to read them to you. What um, God does is he simply gives sort of a recipe card. If you bring a larger animal, then you have to bring more flour, oil, and wine. So instead of a lamb, if you offer a ram, you're going to offer twice the amount of flour and oil and twice the amount of wine. If you actually bring a bull, we're talking a large animal here, then you're up to three times the amount of flour and oil and three times the amount of wine that goes on the sacrifice. Now, let's go back to what Paul said. He says here in 2 Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I am already in the final part of the sacrifice of my life to Jesus. Jesus that's what the drink offering was. It was the very final part of the sacrifice. Remember, the animal offering took a while to be burned up. The flour and oil offering took a while to be burned up. But the drink offering, it was poured out and gone in a moment. And Paul says, I'm already in the process of being poured out. What do we learn from this? The key to finishing well is seeing your life and living your life, all of it, as a sacrifice to Jesus. And that way, when it comes to the end of your life, even if you have to die for your faith in Christ, you say, well, that's no big deal. I've been sacrificing my life to Jesus all the way along. So dying for Jesus at the end is the natural part of it. I like the way Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The key to finishing well is realizing that all of our lives, all of our life is to be lived as a sacrifice of thanks to Jesus Christ for what he has done for us this is the way we worship him our lives are a thank offering to jesus what does this mean it means our time it's not really all ours you could be at the lake right now but you're here because jesus is more important it means your money is part of that offering you could spend all of your money on another house but thankfully People have given and invested of their money, allowing us to buy another campus as a thank offering to Jesus. That's how they invested their lives. Your freedom. You can actually choose to dive into sin, or you can say, you know, I'm not going to dive into sin. I'm going to turn away from sin. I'm not going to exercise all of the freedom I possibly could because I know what God says is not good for me is not good for me. I'm going to restrain some of my freedom. It means you may have to give up on some of your friends. You ever have those friends that you know are just sort of a bad influence on you? You end up making bad choices, and you end up having to say, I'm going to let those friends go as a sacrificial offering to Jesus. I'd rather be lonely without them than comfortable and sinning with them. That's living your life as a sacrifice to Jesus. Now, if some of you, by the way, have been uh, doing the take-up-and-read with us as a church. You know that this past week, we started the book of Romans in take-up-and-read. And when I was reading through Romans in my take-up-and-read, we were in Romans chapter 2. And this jumped out to me, and I highlighted it in my, in my personal Bible reading. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Jesus Christ, There is coming a day, folks, when every single one of us will stand before Jesus. Every single one of us will be judged by Jesus based on how we lived for Jesus. The problem is that so many people in this world live as if this life is all there is. They live as if pleasure in this world is all. All that matters party now because we die and there's nothing that's not true we live now and what really matters is the day we stand before Jesus and we are judged by Jesus and here's the deal as a Christian it's not a judgment for our sin we're forgiven of our sin it's a judgment of rewards How we live our lives sacrificing ourselves for Jesus now will be richly rewarded by Jesus then. That is what we live for. That is what we look forward to. Folks, every single one of us will die one way or the other. Best to die because you're being killed because your faith in Jesus that goes pretty well when you're standing before Jesus, you know. I'm here because I was faithful to the end and I died for it. What's the other option? Oh, I died because of cirrhosis of the liver because I drank too much. That doesn't seem like that's going to go too well. Not a lot of rewards out of that one. Sacrifice your life, living it fully for Jesus, even if it hurts, because you'll be richly rewarded by Jesus on the day you are before him. In fact, I like the way Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, for if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. As Paul was writing to the Philippians, he said, it may be a possibility that to share the gospel with you, I may die. I may be poured out as a drink offering, the final part of the sacrifice of my life. But if that happens, you know what? I'm glad. I'm rejoicing. Because if I'm going to die for something, it's good to be able to die for the fact that I was sharing Jesus with you. That'll be something that's richly rewarded. So, two things we've learned about finishing well. If we're going to finish well, we need to make sure we've passed the baton to to the next generation of leaders. If we're going to finish well, we want to make sure we're living all of our life as a sacrifice for Jesus and for him because we'll be richly rewarded by him when we stand in front of him. Third thing to look at. Finishing well means having a right view of death. Paul says this at the end of verse 6. In the time of my departure has come. I need to... Work on the word time here for a little bit before we get too far into this. The word time is the word kairos. Uh, we've learned that's not chronological time, like the time of my departure has come is immediately. It's not immediately, it means seasonally. This is the season, he says, when I know I will die. He doesn't know if he's going to die in the next five minutes, he doesn't know if he's going to die in the next five months. But what he does know is he is on death row in Rome. Doesn't know when they will get rid of him, but he knows they will get rid of him. To show you that he is not 100% sure of this time, look what he says a little bit later. 2 Timothy 4.13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments, I could use some reading material while I'm here. <laughs> and I could use a jacket. It's sort of cold in the dungeon while I'm here. Or Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. In other words, it's going to get cold make sure you bring that jacket and you get here before winter when I really need my jacket. I don't know when I'll be dying, but I do know that I'll be dying." And then the the question is here, he says, "...the time of my departure has come." What does this word, departure, mean? It is a very rich word. The word, departure, has maybe three different shades of meaning. It was used to describe the unyoking of an animal from a cart or a plow. Paul says, when I die, I finally get to put down my burdens in this life. All the things I carried in this life. All the worries and concerns in this life. Death for Paul is an unyoking. It's a time of rest. Un- this same word is also used sometimes to describe the taking off of chains from prisoners. It is the idea that um, prisoners would have their chains taken off of them. Finally they were set free. And for Paul, remember he's in a Roman dungeon. His hands and feet are chained, most likely chained to a wall. Death for me, I'm finally out of prison. But this word departure, probably many of you have heard this one. It was also used for the, a ship that would set sail and leave a harbor. It's when they took the ropes off the end and it set sail. What Paul is saying is the time is coming when I will set sail from the harbor of earth and sail home to the harbor of heaven. So for Paul... His death is a time where finally he is freed from his burdens. Finally his chains are gone. And he leaves this life to go home to be in heaven with Jesus for the next life. And by the way, look how other verses of Scripture describe this. Paul says about death, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. There it is, same word and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Folks, death for the Christians, for you and for me if you know Jesus, it is far better than this life ever was or ever could be. All of your burdens are gone. All of your chains are broken. Maybe those chains were not little iron manacles around your wrist. Maybe those chains are of sickness that have bonded your the body, the things it could not do, things that you could not say or think. It's all gone. But it's more than that. First Thessalonians chapter three, 4 to verse 3 says this, for we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. When our loved ones die, we grieve, but we don't grieve for them. We celebrate for Christians who die. We grieve for us as we are not with them anymore. Or as it says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or Romans 8:18, 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No matter how bad your day is today, you won't even be able to hardly remember it when we're with Jesus in glory. So, three things about how to finish well. I put them on the back of your outline. Number one, to finish well, I must not just live for Jesus. I must also pass the baton of faith to the next generation of Christian leaders. Paul did that, so even when the churches were falling apart, he wasn't falling apart because he had the right generation of leaders to take care of it. Number two, to finish well, I must see the benefits of sacrificing my life for Jesus. I must remember that the reward I will receive for sacrificially living for Jesus will far outweigh any sacrifices I make for Jesus in this life. And number three, to finish well, I need to have a right view of death. For Christians, death is not the bitter end. It is truly the better end because of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to be people at Crossman's who finish well. Please help us to raise up that next generation of leaders and put the baton into their hands. Help us to live sacrificially all of our life in honor to you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see death is not something to be feared, but as Christians something to be welcomed, because being with you is far better. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.